sliding down the podium. Good to see you all here this morning. Shall we pray? Father, it's been a privilege to sing your praises this morning and to remember your, your son, the person of the Lord Jesus Christ and what he has done for us. May our hearts be attuned to your word this morning to take in these things which you have intended for us, each according to his own need. We thank you, Father, that you are aware of our needs. You are aware of our individual difficulties. We thank you that your word gives light and life and that the Lord Jesus has, through the Spirit, guided us. That he has guided us in the past week. May he guide us right now. We look forward to the coming week with the spiritual optimism of the children of God. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> the sixth commandment. It's a very sobering commandment. It is simply this. In the original Hebrew, verse 13 says, kill not. Verse 14 says, adultery not. And then the eighth commandment, steal not. All of the other commandments, the other six, the seven commandments, the other seven commandments have some, you might say, exposition that goes along with them. But these three commandments are simply two words. Kill not, number six. Adultery not. Steal not. We have it in English as thou shalt not kill. Murder, killing, violates everything that we consider to be fundamental to our understanding of the created world and its created beings in which we live. It violates all of these axioms. Our personhood comes from God. God's is not. God is the original person with a capital P. It violates bodily integrity and autonomy. No one has the right to cause your soul and spirit to leave your body. That decision as to when that happens is left to God. It violates a sanctity revealed by a holy God, the sanctity of life. Fourthly, the concepts of honor and respect come into play. One might say that murder is the ultimate expression of disrespect, that I will cause your spirit and soul to be separated from your body according to my own will. And often, as you know, that would be associated with violence. Your Ten Commandments have other sanctities, sanctity of time, sanctity of property, sanctity of human relationships. But murder violates all of these fundamental sanctities. <clears throat> As to the subject of capital punishment, which I'm sure someone could give a week's worth of seminars on, um, it's interesting that once the ark had stopped floating and Noah and his sons looked out upon the earth and were told to, to fill it there in chapter 9, in the same chapter where the rainbow is given as the sign, 
It says, whoever sheds human blood by man, his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God, he made mankind. So this predates Abraham. It predates Moses. It's a, it's a principle that God put in place and foresaw as the human race moved forward. For the Christian in the New Testament, there is a difficult chapter, chapter 13. And it says that the government, whatever form it may be, is the servant of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing. For it is a servant of God, an avenger, who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. Now my view of this chapter with regard to government, which is a touchy subject, is that governments are indeed part of the plan of God. In engineering, we often think about analyzing things in terms of how we discretize things in time and in space. It may be steel, it may be concrete, it may be a wave in an estuary. And a very important question is, how fine do you want to cut it? It can affect the results, irrespective of the physics. And I always think that God, we, we talk about delta X, delta Y, delta Z, and delta T, this, the increment of time being delta T, and I, I, I like to think that in this context that God's delta T is on the scale of a thousand years. You and I live week by week and we think about this government and that government and this party's up and that party's down. God's plan is on the scale of a thousand years and his purposes will be achieved. Governments will come and go, but God's purposes will be achieved irrespective of what government uh, happens to be in power for a short period of time. And so we should take these things seriously, and as we know in our own um, legal system, we have three degrees or kinds of murder, premeditated, unpremeditated, and manslaughter. I find it interesting that your Bible knows about these kinds of murder. The worst one being, of course, where uh, the, the Bible would say, lie in ambush, that uh, you, you hate someone, and because you hate them, you lie in wait. You are going to ambush them and kill them. And you wait until the right moment and you jump out and kill them. That is the most heinous kind of murder, that is premeditated murder. Second degree murder is sometimes referred to as a crime of passion. That you might get into an argument with someone who get, and that argument gets completely out of control and you strike them in anger and it didn't mean to kill them, but you did. You did kill them. Unpremeditated murder. Third degree murder is more commonly referred to as manslaughter and the Bible uses the example of going out in the woods with your friend, with your friend. And the axe head, you swing the axe and the axe head comes off and flies at your friend and kills him. The Bible uses that exact example of manslaughter. And that, of course, is a serious thing. And the Bible does address it. It addresses it um, in quite some detail with quite a lot of provision. I don't want to spend too much time on these uh, aspects of murder. Um, and so I have text here that I'm going to have to uh, go through fairly quickly. It's too much really text to read, I admit, 
but I want you to know that they are there, that the texts are there in Deuteronomy 17 and 19 and Exodus 20. I want you to know that they're there and you may like to spend some time reading these texts on your own. And should you ever want me to send you this PowerPoint presentation, I would freely do that. Um, Deuteronomy 17 relates to the more detailed explanation in 19 in which the courts uh, you would have, I'm sorry, the arrow key, and then there. Now we are on the same page as they say. <clears throat> and the uh, court is described here in Deuteronomy 17 such that if you were to find it difficult as a people to sort out the intent with regard to the murder, uh, reference is made then to your courts and priests and judges in offices whose job it is to sort out and to have discernment about these things. And if you go to that recourse, you must live with it. This is serious business. In terms of manslaughter, beginning with third-degree murder, you have the setting aside of um, both Levitical and non-Levitical cities of refuge. So with the axe head that you accidentally killed your friend, there may be a brother of that friend, a blood brother, and he says, I'm going to my camp to set up the camp and I have axes in my tool shed. And he says, David, you idiot. The axe head was not on the axe handle. I'm coming to get you. I don't care about the details. You killed my brother in the woods. So under the Levitical system, the, the, the Pentateuch system, I can run to a city of refuge. And I will be protected there by that town. And I can flee there. Um, <clears throat> and note that it says in the last line that part of the evidentiary uh, situation is did I hate him beforehand? Interesting, hatred is brought up. In fact, as I said, I went in the woods, as it says, with my friend. Or did he just seem to be my friend? I went in the woods with my friend, and I killed him unintentionally, and I may flee to a city of refuge. So it's interesting that your Bible and the Pentateuch law, the Torah law, understands these things and makes allowance for these things. And a judgment shall be made. Now, a, 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 an encouragement for me to make sure that my axe head is properly attached to my axe handle is that once I'm in that city of refuge, I can't leave until the high priest dies. I could be there for 20 years. Make sure your axe head is attached to your axe handle. Don't be a careless person. And here we have, <clears throat> the, uh, again, the verses pertaining to that accident. And there are different categories. And now we come to crimes of passion. <clears throat> I am, you know, I'm advancing on the computer with this. That's not what happens. City of Refuge. Three. Yes, now we're on the same page. I apologize. He who strikes someone so that he dies shall certainly be put to death. Yet, if he did not lie in wait for him, there's no ambush, 
but God caused him to fall into his hand after a manner of speaking. Then I will appoint you a place to which he may flee. If, however, someone is enraged with his neighbor so as to kill him in a cunning way, you are to take him even from my altar. He is out of fellowship to be put to death. Now, we come to the pertinence of Exodus 20.13, repeated in Deuteronomy 5, of first-degree murder. A person who hates his neighbor, waits in ambush for him, and rises up and strikes him so that he dies. And he thinks, what choice do I have? I'm going to go to a city of refuge. It's not going to work. He'll be handed over so that he may die. Capital punishment. There shall be no pity for him. You shall eliminate the blood guilt, the guilt for the bloodshed of the innocent from the people of God, the earthly children of God, so that it may go well for you. The Ten Commandments have formed a backdrop, a basis, an ideological, textual, and... Um, philosophical basis for law all over the world. English common law, Napoleonic law, which has effect, affected the law in the province of Quebec, by the way. And <clears throat> in the United States, it is not uncommon for the state courthouse, the highest court in the capital of the state, to have the Ten Commandments on the courthouse. And there are those afoot who say, take it down. Take those commandments off that building. This is a secular state. And when people like Thomas Jefferson founded the United States, it is true that they desired that we would have freedom of religion, freedom of conscience with respect to spiritual beliefs, but that was within a theistic con uh, context of faith in God. How you practice that faith in God, the government shall not get involved. We agree on the Ten Commandments, but the government shall not get involved in the details of the practice of your faith. And so the United States, of course, and the Western world has many Christian denominations coming from that fundamentally Christian theistic background, and that is denied. That is actively denied by many university professors and people who would like to see those Ten Commandments taken down. Now, you may sort of say, <clears throat> you know, it has never even crossed my mind to kill someone. Not even crossed my mind. Never done it, never thought about doing it, never going to do it. This is going to be a boring sermon today, May 21st. I don't know how it applies to me. Well, <clears throat> the Lord Jesus opened up your heart. He opened up my heart. And he said, you know, it was said by them or of them of old time, Moses, thou shalt not kill. And whoever shall kill shall be in danger of the judgment, of the judgment. But I, but I say unto you that whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment, and whosoever shall say to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council, but whoever shall say, Thou fool, shall be in danger of hellfire. Uh-oh. Have I ever in my life 
looked at someone and go and went, that guy is a great big fool. I hold him in contempt. I, I, I tell you to my shame, I have done that. Jesus says, watch out. That is the beginning of murder. And God saw that. And that is the beginning of hatred. And hatred is the source of murder. My heart is a sinner's heart. And it is great to know the Lord, to have my sins washed away, and to confess, to know that as per 1 John 1, 9, we heard from 1 John this morning in multiple places, wonderful letter, that he can cleanse my heart when I sin, and if I have that hard feeling toward a, a man or a brother, the Lord knows to the point that the Lord would say, don't, don't come to me and pray. Get this sorted out. Leave your gift there at the altar. Get right with your brother. That's a very strong statement, isn't it, that last line? In danger of hellfire. I don't um, often read from a book, but I've been reading a book by the former dean of theology at the University of Edinburgh, and it's, I take it everywhere with me. It's 749 pages, so there's sort of a price to carrying that thing around, but it's, it's, it's very good. It's very good. I can, I can really recommend that book to you, the mature believer who is looking for deeper truths. You will find many deeper truths there from Alexander White. White spelt with a Y. However, he writes in the style of a Scottish professor from 1890, so that's a little rough, but... Um, I, and I, as I say, I rarely do this. I rarely read from a book. But I find that um, he's expounding upon this principle of how do these things get started? How did Raqqa come into being? Where did that come from? <clears throat> the Apostle Paul also has this on this same parable, the parable under discussion in White's book, being the parable of the little bit of leaven that spread through the whole. Paul writes, Purge out therefore the old leaven, know ye not that a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump? Mmm. Let us be careful. Therefore let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, neither with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Now what is malice and wickedness? We have seen what self-esteem is. He has written in the past three pages about how self-esteem turns into something else and how it works till it leavens the whole lump. But what is the leaven of malice? You may be old enough to know without being told. You may have enough of it in yourself and you may have suffered enough from it in others. But there are new beginners in self-esteem, yours, <clears throat> and in malice, and the word must be rightly divided to meet their case as well as yours. Now when you are new beginners in morals and in religion, what think you is malice? For you cannot purge it out, nor keep it purged out, if you do not know it when you see it. Well, malice also is like leaven in this. Its first beginning is so small as to not be worth speaking about. In a dignified pulpit, 
You do not, like some, nothing is so common, surely, as that. Already at school, at college, in the office, in the workshop, in the house, you do not like someone. Well, that is your first half ounce of leaven of malice. And your feelings toward that man and your thoughts about him and your words about him and your actions toward him are like the three measures of meal with a little leaven at its heart. You just dislike the man. That is all, as yet. But then full-grown men are so leavened with that same dislike that they actually come to hate one another. So we have that parable that occurs in the Gospels as well as with Paul about how a very small beginning add a dash of pride can grow into something which is very ungodly and dangerous. <clears throat> and there is the Matthew 13 reference to the leaven. But you know, I want to point out to you that as I have spoken on before about the Messiah a month ago, the opposite of hatred is love. And to get love sorted out, the first thing to sort out is to love God. Now you should know, if you don't already, that the idea of loving God is very facilely kicked around. You, you hear people, you know, these, these, these people can spout this. These Pharisees can spout this. They were very sure that they loved God. And Jesus knew what kind of so-called love they loved God with. And he knew what kind of so-called love they loved their neighbor with. But isn't it interesting that he did not contradict those things? We are like as them to say, yeah, love God, sure, yeah, good. Love my neighbor, sounds good, yeah, sure, okay. Really? Is that as far as we've gone? That isn't much. It doesn't withstand much. It doesn't lead to good things when we are so facile in our love toward God and toward our neighbor. But then as I was speaking to you a month ago, you know what needs to pre-exist in order for you and I to have the kind of love which is the perfect antidote for hatred and malice, we have to acknowledge that the Lord Jesus Christ is the Messiah and take him as our own. That is what is necessary to know, to believe that he is the Son of God, he is God the Son, and that he is ours. That is the beginning of knowing the love of God by which we then love God and by which we then love our neighbor. Now I'm going to come to something which is um, uncomfortable for me. I have prayed about how to do this. And <clears throat> it is the subject of abortion. I believe that abortion is murder. I believe that abortion is a direct contravention of the sixth commandment. A precious verse to me is Psalm 139. David is marveling at the various aspects of human what it is to be human. And in verse 13, it, it, you really do want to read the whole psalm, but 
In verse 13, he says this, for you have created me in my inmost parts. You wove me in my mother's womb. You wove me in my mother's womb. I will give thanks to you because I am awesomely and wonderfully made. Amen to that. Wonderful are your works and my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully formed in the depths of the earth, so to speak. Your eyes have seen my formless substance and in your book were written all of the days that were ordained for me when as yet there was not one of them. How precious also are your thoughts for me, O God. How vast is the sum of them. You know, I am a, like everybody, I guess, a soft-hearted guy. I see that little baby over there, and I, I think it's, that child is absolutely awesome. And I have a certain sense of speechlessness. I saw Michael and Michelle's beautiful child, and they're all beautiful, aren't they? Uh, sometimes I, I, I can't help it, and we walk past a baby, and I go, it's so cute. My, my wife goes, they're all cute, come on. They're all, really. <laughs> There's a movie in which uh, a well-known Hollywood movie star used the expression, cute as a Chinese baby. Yeah, I guess Chinese babies are cute, and so are black babies, and so are Scottish babies with their wispy red hair, and they're all cute, aren't they? And they're all precious, and they all had a beginning. And this is in the womb. It is, a, it is a very appalling thing to me that there is a very strong movement, which is, as you know, very pro-abortion. That is evil. And we as Christians, if we're going to be any, you know, worth our salt, and being salt and light. We need to understand what kind of evil that is and what's going on. I want to relate to you now <clears throat> um, an interaction that actually took place at the University of British Columbia. And <clears throat> I will preface my remarks by saying this idea and this analogy, I will have to explain to you the analogy, was put forward by a professor of philosophy and is now in textbooks. Now, if I'm thinking of the average 22-year-old university student or 20-year-old university student sitting in class who's a Christian, and all, this, all the, most of the people in that classroom are pro-abortion, and the professor is selling this idea using this analogy, I also happen to know that if I submit a paper on this subject, which flies in the face of everybody in the room, probably, what are the chances of me getting a good mark? Maybe not so great. So here is the analogy. A woman is kidnapped, and she wakes up in a bed, and she finds that she has various tubes connecting her to somebody else who's in the bed. What's going on? So she re recovers her consciousness more fully, and a doctor comes in the room and says, what we have done is to save the life of the greatest violinist in the world. I think of this as the violinist analogy. Now, this greatest violinist in the world turns out to have a DNA makeup that only you can help. That is why your bloodstream is hooked up to that violinist. You are the only person on the planet that can save the life 
of this great violinist. And, uh, and it's only for nine months. You only have to be keeping that man alive for nine months. So the philosopher says, I can give you the name of the philosopher who came up with this analogy. Doesn't the woman have the right to say, I had nothing to do with this. I, I reserve the right to unplug the violinist. I was not consulted. What responsibility do I have to keep that violinist alive? I have been made the person upon which his life is dependent, and I don't happen to want that, and so I reserve the right to unplug him and let him die. And that is put forward as an argument for the unborn child to be removed from the womb. Now you're sitting there and you're thinking, what would I have said? What would I have perhaps put on my paper that I submit to that professor? It's good for you to think about that for a few minutes. You may find that your own daughter or son is in that class, exactly that kind of discussion. And with all of those people around in the room and the fancy professor with the fancy PhD up there spouting this stuff and everybody going, yeah, yeah. You're sitting there going, no, no. But what's the basis for your no? Well, it has at least three. First of all, you're wondering what I'm going to say. That's good. Make the, you know, there's some smoke coming out of some of your ears. First of all, a marriage union between a man and a woman is done consciously. It is a conscious decision to enter into that union. That analogy has the woman unconscious and kidnapped. That's a breakdown in the analogy. Secondly, one might say everybody knows that a sexual union can result in a pregnancy. Obviously, not a hundred out of a hundred times, but obviously a possibility. So the analogy again breaks down. Where is that consensual union? And it is consensual, at least for the Christian it is. You see, the world says, move the boundaries, throw down the fences, destroy the barriers, we want promiscuity everywhere, all the time, for everyone. Well, that's where they're coming from. And the Christian says, no, no. Sexual union has a context, and the context is marriage. Marriage between a man and his wife. And they are engaged in something that can and does produce children. So again, it's very unlike the analogy that is now in philosophy textbooks. What would you say to a little boy? I did this once, I, I did an incredibly stupid thing, more stupid than this. I had an argument with my friend. I said, my BB gun cannot break her window. It's not powerful enough. <clears throat> I pointed the BB gun at the neighbor behind the backyard and you know what? The BB put a hole in her window. And I was scared. Anyway, I could tell you more about that story and how it panned out and how I earned money to, to come back to her front door and, and, and contribute toward that window. I was 14 years old. I wasn't sure how much a window was worth. But 
this is going in the, to the, toward the direction that's brought up in the discussions that if somebody says, let's play baseball in the cul-de-sac, does it work to say, oh, um, I didn't mean to break your window. Really? Didn't you think that playing baseball in the cul-de-sac could conceivably result in a broken window? Obviously, sexual union can result in pregnancy. This is, this is a biological fact. Or, does, or do you get away with it if you're the boy that says, well, I don't want to pay for it because I didn't intend to. So, it's interesting. Now, here's a legal point. A man and a woman have a union and it, the woman becomes pregnant and the relationship falls apart and the guy moves out of town and the baby is born and the woman goes to the court in Canada and says, I know who the father is. I want child support. The government will make him pay child support if they can. It's his. So how is it that they can support abortion and, at the, you know, and have the child destroyed and at the same breath say that the man must be responsible for that union? It doesn't make any sense. Furthermore, with regard to, one might say, the, the biology of this, the organs involved in this, because sometimes they say, well, would we have forced kidney transplants from parent to child? A variation on a theme, I suppose. The moral responsibility comes from the biological reality. The, what if, this, this analogy is made, what if a woman or you, a man, found yourself in a cabin with a wee baby? Are you supposed to take care of it? And you look around the cabin, you say, oh, good, there's formula. This is a, you know, a two-month-old baby. I can't nurse it if I'm a man, but look, there's formula in the cupboard. There's water. There's everything you need to keep the child alive. What would the court say if you said, no, you'd be charged with criminal negligence for letting that child die in Canada. But a woman who has all the biological ability to take care of that child. It's built in. And a parent has a moral obligation to care for their offspring, a special moral obligation to care for their offspring. An adult has a moral obligation to look out for children. Not to do so is criminal negligence. So all of these things point to the fact that abortion is very wrong and that our own Canadian legal system has built-in contradictions within it. I really uh, love the, the, um, the words that are used. When you think of the hand of God, and you think of this, the hand of God covering and David writes in that psalm, you knew me then. This has become a battleground. This place where the hand of God covered that unborn child at the point at which it just started to fold over. That covering with the uh, Hebrew connotations of protection, of a, of a, of a barrier a natural barrier designed by God to protect that unborn child. 
That's the sense of the Hebrew word if you look it up. That's a beautiful thing to think about God knowing you when you were nothing more than that. He knew you. He knew me. I am, I am comforted and strengthened when I think about that. And that is a sanctified place, that place where that child is growing is a holy place. An unborn child is precious. And what happens thousands of times a year in Canada is murder and darkness and horror at that very place. And that is a terrible thing. <clears throat> Some research on Tessa Kenny. And so as I draw to a close, I think about the other end of life. You think about the beginning of life. You think about the preciousness of that unborn child. And then you think about all the seniors. And recently, it's, if you look in yesterday's National Post even as it happens, They're talking about the results of a survey asking Canadians how they feel about assisted suicide without using the words assisted suicide. Of course, medical assistance in dying. And as one of the commentators pointed out, when you are at the end of your life, do you like the idea of medical assistance? I do. And so by framing it in those words, you soften it. And that's, of course, very deliberate. But what did they find out when they looked into this? It has actually become an industry. It's a growing industry. Is that people are being done in and are asking for death because they are lonely, because they are in poverty. How horrible. How absolutely horrible. And of course, As with other things that we have seen in the past three years, the opinion of the doctor—excuse <clears throat> me—the opinion of the doctor, the doctor who is the doctor of that patient, that lady, not interested. You shall comply with this policy, and that is a frightening place to be for this country. We are coming up to. Uh, I'll jump to this slide. I do believe that the night is far spent. I do believe that though Paul could write that, uh, if you say 6,000 years of human history and after about 4,000 years this was written, we do need to put on the armor of light. We do need to be enlightened people in the best sense of the word, in the Christian sense. I do believe that the wrath of God is coming against all of this kind of thing. And in the middle of that, as it says in Ephesians 5.8, you are light in the Lord. You need to be salt and light. And we need to walk as children of light. And we need discernment. We need the ability to make good judgments. But I put it to you that the main thing that we need is courage. Christians need courage to be Christians. And that comes from God. We are in, 
I believe perilous times, as it says, well, I will go back to perilous times in 2 Timothy 2. These are perilous times. There is every kind of sin, and every kind of sin is justified by people with PhDs and everybody else. These are perilous times. And in order to be salt and light, we need the grace of God, we need to be discerning people, and we need to pray for the courage to stand up and be Christians. Shall we pray? Father, we thank you that we have your word to go by, that it guides us, that it speaks to us. We do indeed pray for courage to be your people, to be evidently your people to this dark world. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for your attention.